Father, we just sung of your grace that brings us to life, that refreshes and renews us each day and that will get us to be with you finally forever where we will sing and praise you for your grace. And we thank you that you're a God who graciously speaks, who nourishes us along the way. Thank you that you know each of us. You know the kind of weeks we've had. You know the the highs and the lows, you know the anxieties, you know the reality. And so we pray that you would speak to us this morning into those situations. Would you feed us with your word? Might we come face to face again with you and would that encounter be transforming? Would you change us? In your son's name we pray. Amen. One of the, um, one of the, the lecturers at the Bible college we went to, um, used to ask a really interesting question. I found it very helpful, uncomfortable, insightful, penetrating. He used to say this. He used to say, so Dan, what, what projects have you got on the go with God at the moment? That is, as Christians, we can enjoy a real dynamic relationship with him. We, we can trust that he loves to speak to us. He cares about us. We, we have his word in our hands. We have his son who loves us. We have his spirit at work in us. And so, Dan, what are you doing with that at the moment? What's he saying to you? How has he spoken to you recently? How has he encouraged you and, and excited you with new and deeper and brighter gospel truths? How has he shown you more of his kindness and his love and his patience? Or perhaps how has he challenged and convicted? How has he led you afresh to the cross? What sins especially are you fighting at the moment? Because he knew very well, as I know very well, and I'm sure you do, that it's very easy to to just kind of slide into complacency as as individuals, or maybe even as a church. We we kind of stop listening. Our hearts get hard. It just gets formulaic. We know the kind of things we're meant to say. We know how to play the game. But but he loves to speak to us. He, he loves to be at work in us. And yet we can easily just get complacent. That was something of what we saw last time as we began to get our bearings straight on this little section at the end of 1 Kings and the start of 2 Kings. Do you remember last week we saw the people weren't listening, but he still sends them Elijah. He still speaks. He was pursuing his wayward children. He's a God who doesn't give up on his people. If you were around last Sunday, I know various people were away because of half term. Let me encourage you to catch up as it gives us something of the bedrock for the series. But we've zoomed in on a time when the people are in the land, but after the heights of King Solomon, the, the nation has split into two to north and south. And the northern kingdom looks great. Ahab, the king, seems to be doing well. It is stable. 
He was there for 22 years. It was prosperous. It was secure. Spiritually, it's in an absolute mess. It's in complete freefall. Ahab is leading, but he's not leading the people in the ways of the Lord. It seems he's mixing in Baal and Asherah worship. He's adding in the practices of his wife, Jezebel. And so rather than showing the world what a good God is, the good life under the good word of the God of Israel, he is simply becoming like everybody else. And the nation isn't distinctive and different and attractive. They're just blending in. They're adopting the practices of those around them. They're not distinctive. Which is always the challenge, isn't it? For the people of God. And so last time we saw there was a drought. It was drought time. Why one? Because the people had persistently forgotten God and he had warned them and said, if you keep ignoring me, I will stop the rain. And each morning as they wake up to cloudless skies, they're reminded of their disobedience. The sky is shouting to them, return to him, remember him, come back to him. But drought as well because Baal, whom they worship, was allegedly the god of fertility and crops and farming. And so we see in the drought Baal's empty promises. The reality of his lack of power because the Lord just turns off the tap. And it will rain again when he says. And so it's drought time. And Elijah comes, but he has been preserved. You remember he's gone to the far, far east of the land, to the Kerith Ravine, verse 3. He's been protected, we'll see later, from Jezebel and her prophet-murdering tendencies. But also he's been provided for with meat, bread, water. But at the heart of this section, part of the reason we slow right down for Elijah is because we see God pursuing his wayward children with his words. We see something of the depths of God's people under King Ahab, but we see something of his kindness in drawing them back to him. He's a God who doesn't give up on his people Which is then why verse 8 and 9 is a bit surprising. Because you see Elijah's next destination. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have instructed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. You see again God speaks and Elijah listens and obeys. And Zarephath... But that's a strange thing. It's about 80 miles north of Samaria. This is out of the land. This is enemy territory. In fact, this is where Jezebel came from, where her father was king. The Lord has said to Elijah, leave your home, leave your land, and go into the middle of enemy territory where Baal is worshipped. And so we see his mercy in the most unlikely place. And it's there we see the Lord miraculously provides. At the outset, Zarephath is an interesting destination. There's all kinds of stuff going on. 
as, as Elijah goes there. Firstly, we see there's a sense in which there's judgment over God's people. Israel is being shamed and bypassed. It's shocking. God is providing for his enemies. His enemies. Rather than his chosen people. Actually, we, we see in Zarephath a surprising level of obedience and faith. Maybe we, maybe more than we would see in Israel. In fact, Jesus picks up on this point in Luke 4. He says, later in the Bible, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And the people, when they hear that, they were furious. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. It's a picture of judgment as Elijah goes to the Lord's enemies rather than his people. Secondly, the name Zarephath is a really interesting one. I'm told it comes from the Hebrew root, meaning to smelt or to refine. So maybe there was a smelting works there, ironworks, we don't know for sure. But we do know it would be something of a, of a time of training, a crucible for Elijah, refining him, preparing him, getting him ready for the next stage, getting him ready to deal with Ahab. Thirdly, it's, it's clear that God is not local. He's not tribal. He doesn't just have authority over his bit of the land. Small areas or territories. He's not just concerned or or in charge with a small geographical zone. No, no, he is the God of the world. He is sovereign. Even in the home territory of Baal, he is in charge. Even camped in Baal's backyard, God has power. He is God. Finally, it's striking, I think, that he sent to a widow. Someone vulnerable. Someone powerless. Someone overlooked. Indeed, more than that, it's not just her. It's those she's providing for as well, her son, a, a dependent. And as you read, as you read the pages of Scripture, you see the Lord has a particular concern, it seems, for the plight of those who can't help themselves, for widows, for orphans. It's great to hear of Tom going to visit Fanan. Lots of those little micro-credit things he set up are for widows who can't support themselves. Maybe this widow in Zarephath points to something of human sinfulness, to selfishness in her land. It seems everywhere is under drought, but... But where are the people looking after her? Where are the generous rich? And so verse 10. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called her, And bring me please a piece of bread. Surely as your Lord, your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Just a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. 
Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me and what you have from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah told her. Isn't she a beautiful picture of faith? She simply trusts the word of the Lord. She stakes everything on him. She, she's willing to share her last scraps of food, a handful of flour, a little olive oil, and she, she trusts him. She throws herself on him. And as he is with us, isn't, isn't he very gentle and reassuring? It's not a step in the dark for this widow. Did you spot that? Verse 13, don't be afraid. Verse 14, he gives her evidence why it's a good idea to listen, why they should trust him. And so we see just as God had miraculously provided for Elijah through the ravens last week was so again, For Elijah, this week he miraculously provides through this destitute, helpless, Gentile widow. And so verse 15, there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family, for the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. It may be against every single parental instinct. She obeys and she trusts and she feeds Elijah before she feeds her son before she feeds herself. And the flour and the oil keep coming. You can picture the story. Maybe on the first day, she makes a really teeny tiny loaf. Just a little bun. But the next day, there's there's oil and there's flour again. There's enough for a bigger one and a bigger and... A bigger and she gains a bit more confidence. It's a continuous daily miracle. The Lord providing just enough for, for that day. It's not as if, as I guess we would often like, I know I would, an enormous jar of flour appears in the corner. A huge jug of oil turns up in the pantry. No, no, no. Just enough flour for the day. Just enough oil. Each day having to look to the Lord, to trust him, to provide for that day. Each day she's given life. Isn't that a picture of just the daily Christian life? Daily, simple, trusting, daily provision. Give us today our daily bread. It's an extraordinary lesson from this enemy Gentile widow, not a part of the people of God. And you see, the danger for people like us, as it was for the people of Israel at the time, is that we become indifferent to the word of God. And we stop listening and we stop trusting. We spoke briefly about it last week, but all around the world, the kingdom of God is growing and flourishing, and I say all around the world, but really it's 
It's much more likely in Latin America and Africa and Asia. People a bit like this widow who have worshipped other gods and have seen that the God of the Bible actually is the true God. The one who made the world. They've, they've seen him, they've trusted him, they've listened. And in the West, en masse, we've swallowed the lie that, that the Bible is just ideas from an ancient culture, hasn't really got much to say to us today, really. We've grown complacent and we've stopped listening and we don't want to take it too seriously, do you now? But this widow, it's very simple. She, she listens and she trusts and she obeys. Isn't that striking? It's, it's very basic, but it's incredibly hard, isn't it? When it comes down to it. Let me push this a bit. So, so you know you. Where does this bite for you? Where is the rub? Where, where is it hard to actually trust God? Where is that battle? Maybe it's maybe uncertainty for the future. We can control all kinds of things in our environment, but we want to know what's coming around the corner. We want to know how the next few months and years will pan out. We want to get all the T's crossed and the I's dotted to know how it's going to end. But God simply says, it's okay just for today. Listen to me. Trust me. Obey me. Or it's relationships. And you wanted things to be different. Maybe you wanted a spouse or kids or more friends or grandchildren. Or, or you didn't want this spouse or these kids or these friends or those grandchildren. But he says, it's okay. Listen to me. Trust me. Obey me. Maybe it's hard to trust, trust God at work. At work. Everything in you wants to go with the crowd and do what everyone else does. And it's easier to trust your boss and the promises they make to you. To trust others, to do what they do. And he simply says, it's okay today. Listen to me. Trust me. Obey me. Maybe you're a hoarder. Maybe you're the kind of person who would be stockpiling flour and oil just in case there wasn't enough for tomorrow. So for you, it's, it's money and things and savings and that sort of stuff. But God says we're to be generous. And we think, well, I'm not sure I can really trust him to be, for me to be generous, can I? It's nice in theory, but in practice to live that out. He says, I'll give you what you need for today. Listen to me, trust me, obey me. Last one, maybe it's where you find your worth your value, your identity. This is such an important one, whoever we are. The world screams loudly at us that our worth, our value, our identity comes in being successful, having loads of friends, being beautiful, being funny, having amazing grades, having loads of whatever. And he says, it's okay to be you. Don't worry about everybody else. Find your value and worth in me. Listen to me, trust me, obey me. Because all these other things might make you offers of life. They might pitch to you how great they are, how much you need them, how you should trust them. But do you remember how this little section began? 17 verse 1. As the Lord 
the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve. You see, only the Lord really can bring life, because only really he lives. It's very simple. And all the other so-called gods will talk a good game, but they never deliver finally. Whereas the God of Israel can and does. He can sustain a widow and her son from Zarephath, rescuing them from the jaws of death. But you know, he can do more than that. Because he can rescue too when the jaws of death have grabbed on firmly and tightly and swallowed them whole. Because secondly, we see God miraculously brings life, verse 17 to 24. See, as the chapter progresses, the story unfolds. This is no longer snatching from the edge of death. This is reaching into death and bringing back the son. Verse 17, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times, cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. It's it's a remarkable account, isn't it? Daily, kindly, the Lord has preserved this little family unit. They've, They've looked to him, they've trusted him. But it's weird, the son ends up dead. Not from starvation, but but illness. That's not how the story's meant to pan out. It's wrong. Why would he allow this to happen? He's used the miraculous to keep them alive, to flour and oil on the shelf each morning. Why now is he dead? We're not exactly told. My reading is so that the widow and later readers will know who God is and will know who Elijah is and will listen to his word. This miracle rubber stamps the identity of the prophet, one from God, one from the living God. It's striking. As far as we can tell, it's the first time someone in the Bible is raised from the dead. It begins with the mother blaming Elijah. Maybe not unsurprisingly, it's... It's more than likely she knew, I think, that Elijah had announced the drought as punishment from God for sin and rebellion. And so maybe in payment for her bar worship, she thinks, verse 18, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come and remind me of my sin and kill my son? And Elijah responds, and it's, it's very snappy and short and matter-of-fact. Number one, give me your son. 
Number two, he carries him upstairs. Number three, he very personally prays, my God. And then fourthly, in what seems to be some kind of a prophetic action, he, he stretches himself onto the corpse and the Lord, Lord hears. Just as the living Lord lives, so he brings life. Elijah's cry to God is a simple one of utter helplessness, but it's a profound prayer of faith. Throws himself upon the Lord's mercy. Lord, I can't do this. Lord, I need you. Lord, this is, this is your territory if you are the God who lives. At times the Lord, I think, puts us into those positions where we can have no doubts that it's him. And it's not us. It's all of him. It's none of us. Only he can provide what we need in this situation. There is no room for pride. I sometimes wonder if that's what's going on with the Irving. Time will tell and we shall see. But the Lord does indeed bring life from death. When it looks hopeless, when life looks hopeless, with him there is always hope. He's never not in control. And he lives. As we begin to to gather things and draw them to an end, it's worth just slowing down and noting a a close parallel of a later story in the Bible. Maybe it's been there in your minds for some of us. There are a few we could think about, but particularly Jesus' healing of the widow's son at Nain in Luke 7 is really important. It's, It's as if Elijah here points us ahead to Jesus there. It's a sad tale. A young boy has recently died. It's a funeral. In the midst of the mourning and the wailing, Jesus goes over to him and he simply touches the boy and he's alive. But there's a key difference. There's a key difference between Nain and Zarephath, between Jesus' actions there and Elijah's ones now, because Elijah prayed, whereas Jesus simply speaks. He simply speaks and raises the dead. The one who spoke existence into being can, of course, speak and bring life to the dead. But actually experiencing this at ground level in Jesus' day and name would have been extraordinary for those, for those watching in. They're beginning to have pennies dropping. Who is this who can give life, who has the authority to, to actually give life? Who can be trusted in death? There's a key difference, but a really important similarity, and that is the point of both miracles. Because back in, back in Elijah, it's a slightly strange end. Do you think that a little abrupt? Verse 24, then the woman said to Elijah, thank you, my son is alive again. She doesn't say that. What does she say now? I know you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Do you see, miracles in the Bible are actually relatively uncommon. They, they cluster at certain times and for certain periods. We'll think more about this 
in a bit in this series. But they're unusual, and the thing is, they're never just party tricks. It's, it's never just Bruce Almighty showing off and seeking to impress, using powers selfishly for his own benefit. No, no, miracles are to help us see that he is real. And so when Jesus raises the boy in name, the crowds react by saying, a great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. When Elijah raises the boy in Zarephath, the mum responds, now I know who you are. Now I know that what you say is true. Do you see the point of the widow? When we see who God is, well, we take his words seriously. And of course, the irony is the privileged people of God who had his word in their hands had missed it. And they'd grown complacent and shut their ears and hardened their hearts and run after other gods. And it was someone perhaps we would least expect who, who listens and understands and trusts and obeys. So as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper together in a moment, we come to, we come in a sense to acknowledge our weakness and say, Lord, how easily we can be complacent, how easily we can stop listening to you and start listening to other voices. And the Lord says to us, come back, come back, come and And listen, come and hear my voice. Come and soften your heart again. Come and trust me. Come and return to me. Remember. Receive my my body broken for you. My blood shed for you. Come and have life. Come see how I pursue my wayward people and draw them back to myself. Come see that my grace is sufficient. Come and trust me. Come and receive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this widow and for her example. Thank you that when she sees something of who who you are, so she listens, she acknowledges, she, she knows that your word is powerful. Father, forgive us for our complacency. Forgive us for trusting other things. Forgive us, please, for softening our hearts to other gods that promise life, but hardening them to you, the only living God who can really bring life. Make us a people, please, who love to listen to your voice. And who trust and obey because we know you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.